0: okay get all my stuff together so good to see you and be with you today and thank you for these awesome testimonies that make us praise god more and we're going to talk about how we can do that to each other and and fill each other's hearts when we tell those stories about god's might in our lives so thank you all for doing that and um I'm Lynn Kitchens, so honored to be here today. And since I am here and I have this mic, I'm going to do a quick plug for the Women's Mentoring Workshop. Saturday, would love it if any of you would just seek God and say, would you like me to be at that? If you come, you don't necessarily have to say, okay, I'm going to mentor. But you can process the information and just seek God on that. We have a lot of young women that would... Just love to be with all of you. So just wanted to throw that out there. We're going to have breakfast, 10 to 12, in the chapel by the small sanctuary. Okay. Off of my uh, commercial, I uh, have been thinking about this story this week just because of all this rain. I was afraid we were all going to have to swim to get here. Constant uh, rain. And a few years ago, it was really bad, and I can't even remember for sure how long ago it was. But um, I live out in Alito and my neighbor is Penny Casburn, and she's a part of this uh, ministry here, and our kids were all close, and she has a son named Adam, and he was living at home at the time, and my son Tyler was at home. I can't remember. I guess they were like early college or something like that, and it had been like this, but raining, 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 mostly just in Alito. And if you've already heard this story, sorry, (laughs) you'll have to hear it again. Anyway. So I drive up, and our driveway is next to the Trinity River, which has come up over Kelly Road and over most of our driveway. And so I'm going to be real smart and go through a field that comes up back around the Casburns. So, of course, immediately we just, you know, my car sinks into the field. So Tyler hops out, and I have Adam with me for some reason, and they say, we're going down to look at the river. And I'm like, you stay out of that river. This is what people talk about when they just get swept away. And I, they go, we're just going to look at it. And I said, okay, just be careful. Go up to my house, start cooking dinner. The phone rings, and it's a friend from Collieville, And she is calling to say, wow, I'm watching the news. And they said Alito is so bad. And I go, yeah, it's really raining. She goes, yeah, they're showing these two boys. <laughs> On the news that are in the river, and they're saying how dangerous it is. And I'm there stirring, and you'll go, I cannot believe that. I can't believe some mothers, two children, <laughs> are down in the river. And then I, 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 it was slow, but all of a sudden it hits me, and I said, were they big boys? <laughs> she said, yes, they are. And I throw the phone down. Go running down this hill, can't get down my driveway, so I'm sc- <laughs> screaming Tyler's name through the woods. And by that time, he and Adam had gotten out of the river. They actually didn't get totally into it, they were doing that thing where you hang on a tree and it's coming under you. <laughs> so I'm yelling his name, and I'm yelling, Tyler, Tyler, and someone yells, He's swimming up the driveway. <laughs> So I'm glad none of us had to swim to get here. That was a very small trial in my life. Today we get to talk about the mighty trials in our life and how God is mightier yet to overcome them. And I was so excited, like Nancy said, Psalm 18, how awesome to have this for future trials in our lives and to apply it to what's going on in our life right now this is a praise song about God's deliverance and when we read the intro to it we see that David sang these words to God and I sort of want to know did he memorize it this is a lot of words there's no choruses that repeat themselves this is this is hard But however he sang it, I believe it came from the depths of his heart. Maybe he played his harp with it. And he sang words of praise to his mighty, mighty God. And there are some great lessons for us in this. So I want you to imagine yourself. You're a teenager. You're standing alone in a big field. Standing across from you is a giant man, nine feet, nine inches tall. Covered in armor, holding a spear and a javelin and a sword, and the head of that iron spear itself weighs 15 pounds. And he's standing right in front of you, and he doesn't want to be your friend. (laughs) He wants to kill you. And all you've brought is a staff, a slingshot, and five little stones. And as you're contemplating this, this man giant named Goliath is mocking you and cursing you and says to you in a very deep and angry voice, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. What would you do as a teenage girl standing in a field? You could do a couple things. First, you could run away probably what I would do. You could faint away. You could surrender to this enemy or you could approach this enemy. And we realize when young David faced this gigantic foe, he did bring more than some stones and a slingshot because he looked at Goliath. He had to look up. And he said, you know, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, whom you are taunting. So on this day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands for the battle is the Lord. On your outline, when young David faced a trial of mighty proportions, he brought along his faith in a mighty God. He trusted in his deliverer. That was his secret weapon. And with one quick motion, David killed that giant Goliath with one single stone to his forehead. And just thinking about this story always makes me think I want to face the Goliaths in my life with that same courage and with that same confidence. And the Goliaths in our lives are those dark days, those hard circumstances, those impossible people or impossible situations that come along in our life and get in our path. And on your outline, when we find ourselves facing a mighty trial, we have those same four choices. First, we can run away. And what that means is we just decide to walk away from God and seek other ways to have a remedy to this trial in our life. We go to others. We leave our faith behind. Secondly, we can faint away. We get so overwhelmed when we look at it that we become helpless. And we become hopeless. We can surrender. Give up and allow the trial to defeat us spiritually and emotionally. Give into it. Or we can be like David. Standing tall. Standing strong. Looking at that nine foot, nine inch, gigantic trial in our life. And we can decide, I'm going to approach it in faith faith in my mighty God. And I say in my heart, God will deliver me. The battle is the Lord's. So how do we get there? How do we get to that place of faith? How did David get to that place of faith? And we have to realize this is a place God expects us to go. Look on your verse sheet at James 1. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. And that's just a special reward when we meet face-to-face with Jesus for those of us that have endured and persevered through trials. And we know from reading this that David faced many other hard trials after Goliath. He was to be king of Israel. God sent Samuel to anoint David to be king. And of course, there already was a king. King Saul. So that didn't sit very well with him. And his jealousy overtook him. And he would try to pin David to a wall with his spear. And then he spent years chasing David in the wilderness. He lived like a nomad. He had to live among many pagan nations. He had to leave his wife, Michael. He had to leave his best friend Jonathan behind. Both happened to be Saul's children. Left those people behind. And he lived a lot of his time in caves. And I have a picture of uh, En Gedi, which is one of the areas David lived. I got to be here a few years ago. Okay, that doesn't look real fun. We walked along it, and at the bottom, there was, there was some trees and stuff. But the minute you started climbing, which you knew that's what David had to do to survive, this is what it looked like. That story of David coming into a cave and Saul not knowing he's in there and comes in, this is the area that that would have happened in. We could hardly walk around in our tennis shoes. And I'm like, how did they climb these kind of things? This was his life. And he was always running from hostile nations and the Philistines. And then after Saul died, he spent seven years battling Saul's descendants who all wanted the throne of Israel. So what did these dark days seem like to David? Look in chapter 18, verse 4. The cords of death entangle me. The torrents of destruction overwhelm me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to my God for help. I think David's trials were physical, they were spiritual, and they were emotional. They were physical because just take a look. He was exhausted, he was running, he was facing death. He was in warfare, spiritual, because these people that were pursuing him, including Saul, were not all about God's plan. They were opposed to God's plan. And so they pursued him, and even though he'd been called the anointed one to be king of Israel, I think they were emotional because he had to deal with rejection, isolation, Exhaustion, confusion, waiting, and just that fear of facing death that was always in his days. These words we just read sort of give us a great picture of it felt to David like all these evil forces were just surrounding him and enclosing him and trapping him and about to overwhelm him physically and emotionally says he was distressed. And some Bibles interpret one of the lines in here that he was, uh, felt the sorrows of Sheol or death. He felt those sorrows deeply. But while David lived through these dark days, he was totally keeping an account of every time God delivered him. He was remembering it and holding on to it. And when you read Psalm 18, you got to read it. You got to live it. You got to see exactly what God did for David. When he recalled his trials of mighty proportions, he acknowledged God. And he acknowledged God's great deliverance. But how did he do it? How did he go from being a shepherd with Goliath to a king of Israel with all these hard things in between? Without running away from God without fainting, without surrendering to the enemy. How did he do it? I think David knew that God was mightier than any physical, spiritual, or emotional battle that might come his way. We read he knew that he was worthy of praise, and so he called out to him in verse 3. And here's what he thought. About the mightiness of God. Um, Look at verse 2. When you see in the middle where it says, my God, those words are interpreted my mighty one. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. He is my shield, the horn of my salvation, and my stronghold. This is a picture of, you can sort of envision David back up here in Engedi when he writes these words. The safety and the security that he could find hiding up here. He's saying, my God is that and more to me. My God is my rock. And the first time he says rock, he means a safe abode. It's a refuge that's set up away from his enemies. And then he says... You are my fortress. And when you're in a fort, are you very worried about your enemies? You're not. And so he's saying, this is a place where I can escape from my worries and consider my enemies without fear binding me. He says, you're my deliverer. And a deliverer is someone who rescues in the middle of great turmoil. In fact, when we sang Lifter of My Head today, it reminded me of this really neat story. My husband is friends with a man named George. He's a pastor in Alabama. We haven't talked to him in a long time. But he is a big fisherman. And so many Sunday nights after church, he would go out and fish. And he told Ted this neatest story about fishing while the sun was setting one night, and there always used to be some ducks that were always around his little boat that was close to shore. He got used to them. They got used to uh, him. And he said one day he was there at night after church, and he's fishing away, and he notices that a weight from somebody's line has wrapped itself around the bill of one of those ducks that always visits him. And because it was a heavy, big weight, a duck could not hold his head up out of the water for very long. So he was in the water, and his head would drop down. And the duck can't stay that way very long. But he said the coolest thing to watch was the mate of the duck would get underneath the head of his mate and come up and lift the head of that duck up right when he needed to get it up. And George said he watched that happen repeatedly. The duck would leave, the head would go back down. The mate would come and lift that head. And they ended up being okay, because I know you're going to wonder. The lifter of our head in the middle of a great turmoil, he is our deliverer. David, you learned later on, felt like he was drowning. God was the lifter of his head. He mentions God's his rock again in this verse. And this time, the first rock is about being a cliff and hiding. This rock is about strength and stability and being strong. And and I wrote down eternal support. That is God as a rock. He is our shield or buckler, and that means he comes between. He's going to come between us and our trials. He's the horn of salvation, and horn always symbolizes strength. And he's our stronghold, and another word there is tower, which means we're up high. We're lifted up high, rising above harm. And I love what Spurgeon said about this. When we were in that tower of God's deliverance, he says, We survey a wide landscape of mercy. We can do that because he lifts us out and keeps us above these hard things. And when we don't know these things about God, when we don't understand this is who he wants to be in our life, then we don't go to God. Then we don't cry out to God like David did. When we don't know these things, when we forget, oh yes, he is worthy of praise. Instead of going to God, we might go and, to God and talk at God. That's called anger. We might talk about God to others, and that's called the bitterness. But if we don't believe he's mighty to save, we don't go to God and seek him in these hard times. And I thought about myself here, and I thought, well, yeah, we all think he's mighty enough to do that. I think we need to evaluate that, because I think I would remember to go to him first much more often if I kept in mind how mighty he is, how worthy of praise he is. How do we come to embrace the mightiness of God in our trials? And first, I put down, we meditate on God's mighty work in our past deliverances. That's what this psalm is about. But David just didn't all of a sudden come up with this. He practiced this as a young shepherd. When he was about to face Goliath, these were his words to Saul. I've been keeping my father's sheep, and I've killed a lion, and I've killed a bear, and the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion... And the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine named Goliath. Because David credited, even as a young man, his deliverance to God when he was just a shepherd boy, he was able to be ready and understand he would be delivered in his future. In fact, look at the end of this psalm, verse 50. David doesn't say here, oh, yes, he gave his king great victories. What does he say? He gives. He will give. He will continue to give. He doesn't say, yeah, God showed me unfailing kindness. What does it say? He shows me. He will continue to show me. I'm going to trust that. To David and his descendants, when? Forever. David had an expectation that God would continue to be his deliverer. And because of that, he would be ready for all these trials. I think it's so easy for us to ignore the fact when we've been delivered. Or we forget the fact when we've been delivered. And we need to tell these deliverance stories like Nancy did today. We need to tell these stories so we keep alive in our heart. The mightiness of God. Tell them to each other. It reminds us of that. And we'll be ready for our next trial. I thought about the huge trial uh, that happened when we built a sanctuary. You know, our church had grown. We had a million cars. We had nowhere to put them. We were parking in people's living rooms. uh, In their driveways. uh, they weren't very happy with us and I don't blame them. They were unhappy. And so then when they hear now they're building a giant building guess what, that unhappiness grew and we were in a bad situation. So we had a neighborhood who didn't want us here anymore. And, um, it was crushing. I just know the leadership agonized and prayed over it. It was such a hard trial. And, uh, Ted, my husband, he probably agonized over it more than anyone. He could not stand to get to work looking around thinking that these neighbors not only weren't here but were angry with us. And he wept about it and prayed about it. And uh, this is why I'm telling this story because I want to tell about the mightiness of God. Uh, There were some neighbors that were the most vocal And um, they would sometimes sit on a little wooden bench in their front yard and just let you know they weren't very happy (laughs) with this new building. And Ted was even specifically praying that he could be friends with them. That was the last thing on their mind. It would have taken a miracle from God for that to happen. One day, one of them called and had a need And I just can't tell you how fast Christ Chapel, (laughs) everyone in the church was over there getting them food, taking this, fixing an apartment for their relatives because of this hurricane in Houston. It was amazing. And the day came when she came walking into this church and gave Ted a big hug, and he was in shock. It was the most huge answer to prayer. And not long after that, the other woman wrote a note and said, Let, let's have some forgiveness here. And her life in the Lord has totally changed. She's here all the time. In fact, I, was, I said to Ted, can I tell this story? And he said, hey, I talked to her today about three times on the phone. Go ahead and tell. And they meet and they talk. That was the mighty hand of God. And here's the neat ending to the story. Ted noticed that wooden bench was broken down. And so he said, would you like us to fix that bench? And she said, I would. And wonderful James Burr grabbed that bench and fixed it. And it's sitting back in her front yard, but she is not in it. She is involved in spiritual things. She is thankful for our church. And every time we drive by that bench, I say, that is a sign of the deliverance of God sitting out front. And I think that's what she thinks when she sees it too. Tell these stories. David not only did that as a shepherd, while he was running around climbing, while he was in war, while he was in hardships, he continued to tell of the might of God. And so these next few verses... These are the ones we read. They're called the Magnificent Theophany, which means when a theophany is when God appears to man. And so David takes all his adventures, all his deliverances, and puts them into one story. He uses a storm as an example, maybe because there were lots of big storms in the east. Maybe he was thinking about when God delivered um, the Israelites from the Egyptians. And there was his might displayed as he lifted them out of that situation with the parting of the Red Sea. And anyway, he does it very poetically. And um, I want us to look at that. So look at verse 6. And I wanted to mention he is, he is actually saying here that God... Um, his movement even affects all of nature and God is going to affect anything that gets in his way that is opposed to his plan. I think David's saying God will turn the universe inside out for those he decides he wants to deliver. And in David's case, he felt like he was drowning in deep waters and his cries rose to the ears of his mighty God. Look at verse 6. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to him from his temple. He heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. The earth trembled and quaked. The foundations of the mountains shook. They trembled because he was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils. Consuming fire came from his mouth. Burning coals blazed out of it. Now, what I'm going to do is take one word to kind of summarize what each was happening in these verses. And on this one, this is just all about the anger of a mighty God. And it shows that his words are purifying. His words are powerful. He is angry because he has a faithful follower who is being unjustly assaulted. And it makes God angry. David was to be king of Israel... God chose him to be king, and God speaks, and his words are like fire when we read these verses. It's scary to read these verses. Uh, Look at Jeremiah 23 on your verse sheet. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces? His words purify. His words are powerful. And I thought about Jesus. And I thought about the power in his words. He could just speak a word and someone would be healed. He could speak a word and evil spirits would have to depart. He could speak a word and nature would have to do his bidding. I thought about when he was in the garden and they were coming to capture him. And he turns and he says to some of the guards, I think this is in the book of John, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth, and he says, I am, I am him. And with those words, those guards hit the ground, said they fell to the ground. The power of the words of God. He speaks for us today. Romans 8 tells us God is still speaking for us. It says that he is interceding for us with groanings, too deep for words to express. Yay, he's mighty and I'm glad. And then David goes into the actions of a mighty God. And this is when I'll give you one word. First verse nine, he parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. And this is the storm is near. God is in the storm. He's going to deliver. The heavens bow down. At the majesty and glory of his appearance and under his feet, the dark clouds are interpreted a deep gloom. And here's the best thing I read to describe it. When God's indignation rages, the somber gloom of judgment attends his steps. The word here is judgment. That's what's about to happen. That's what that verse is about. Verse 10, he mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. The cherub is God's angels used to bring glory to him. And, you know, the wicked Canaanites, they also had a poem that described their evil God, Baal, riding on something that resembled a cherub. And I think David takes their very words, uses them here to show, "Uh -uh. (laughs) uh-uh, that's not God at all. I know the true, one true God. And so he envisions this picture of God coming in. And here's what else I like. When God is entering with his angels, this is a heavenly scene, but he's coming in on the wind, which is an earthly scene. And I think together they both are saying, we are both submissive to the one true God, doing his bidding. They submit to his authority. So the word is authority. Verse 11, he made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, the dark rain clouds of the sky. And this refers this darkness to the hiddenness of God. That's the word we're looking at. And that means we can't completely understand him. We are his creatures. He is the creator. So when he comes in judgment, we can't always entirely understand it. It's hidden. It's a mystery to us. Look at verse 12. Out of the brightness of his presence, clouds advanced with hailstones and bolts of lightning. The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. He shot his arrows and scattered the enemies. Great bolts of lightning and routed them. The brightness here, unlike the darkness, this represents God's holiness. And in his holiness, he comes to confront those adversaries of David those enemies that are opposed to him, and you see him shooting arrows, and those represent punishment. So, the word this verse is about punishment. And when he does this, the enemy scatters. And what I want you to do is make sure you take these words and think this is what God does for me, not necessarily by throwing lightning bolts. I want you to look behind the poetry and make sure you don't think, well, that was just David telling a story. These one words we're finding, these are true for us today. So look beyond the imagery and grab hold of those truths that we see here. Okay, verse 15. The valleys of the sea were exposed, the foundations of the earth laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of breath from your nostrils. So we see these troubled waters that surrounded David, and because of God's intervention, they are blasted away. In fact, David wants you to know they're blasted down to the foundations of the earth. There is not a drop left. The ocean beds are disclosed All is exposed at the rebuke of God. This is a picture of God's power, and that's the word power. Reminded me of Matthew 8 when that storm was happening to the disciples. Look on your verse sheet. And they were frightened on the lake, Sea of Galilee. And Jesus replied, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. That is something only the one true God can do. Look at verse 16. He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my disaster, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Now I love these verses a lot because when we look at these other verses and we're thinking judgment, punishment, darkness, uh, authority, power, you know, we're overwhelmed with who God is. We're overwhelmed with this holiness and his power. But Our mighty God is also our mighty Father. That's what these verses show us. He loves us. He rescues us. That's your next word. Personally, out of our distress. He delivered David from that which would certainly defeat him. In Canaan, if you talked about deep waters, they would be referring to false gods. And I think David used these words as well to show that God is superior to your false gods. In fact, he can stoop down and any enemies that you think are as strong as God, he can just lift up and do whatever he wants. The dark waters do not frighten God or stop God. And then I love that he says, he set him down in a spacious place. Okay, look up here. He went from here to the throne of Israel. God picked him up from his cramped quarters and set him on the spacious place, the throne of Israel, where once he felt enchained and trapped. He now feels freedom and security. And don't you know what that feels like? You've been in some dark places. When God delivers us, it's like we're free again. We have that exciting feeling of the peace and joy of God. Here's what Spurgeon says. God doesn't leave his work half done. Having routed the foe, he leads out the captive to liberty. And then he says, large indeed is the possession and the place of the believer in Jesus Christ. There is no limit to his peace. It is spacious. There is no bound to his privilege. It is open. It is expansive. I thought a little bit about uh, Corey Ten Boom here when, you know, she was um, a Dutch woman imprisoned in the Nazi concentration camps. She was delivered. God chose to deliver her sister by taking her home to heaven. Corey, he had another plan. He wanted her to talk about forgiveness, go out into the world. She talks about in her book at some place how when she was taken out of her cramped, filthy, horrible quarters and set free by an act of God, she woke up the first morning. I guess someone took her into their home and she said the feeling of clean white sheets almost overwhelmed her. She was so used to feeling trapped and surrounded and i thought that's what it feels like when god comes to deliver us from trials we see god's free grace when he says he rescued me because he delighted in me what a mystery how he delights in us but isn't that our greatest joy We meditate on God's deliverance in our lives to remind us of his mightiness. And you might circle that word meditate. Do you think David could have come up with these incredible realities of God just maybe having coffee and a bagel one morning? No. We have to meditate. We have to pray. We have to go to God. We have to think about who God is. Secondly, on your outline, we meditate on our calling to be servants of God. This is another way we grow into understanding his mightiness. When we make ourselves out to be like little gods and we design our world to revolve around us, so pretty soon we lose sight of the mightiness of God and we start looking at the mightiness of moi. And God gets smaller and smaller. But look at what David says. Turn back to the very front of Psalm 18. Look in the title there. For the director of music of David, the servant of the Lord. We meditate on our calling that we are servants of the Lord. Look at Ephesians 2.10. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. When we live out our calling knowing who we are and why we're here, then we can understand how great God is, and we treasure it. We love it. Okay, when we read these next few verses, which you've read about David talking about himself, we think, whoa, did he really see himself as a servant? He seems pretty cocky. What's the condition of his heart? And this is an important question because I really believe the condition of his heart is what helped David endure these years of dark and difficult days. So if our heart is mighty in the Lord, we will find strength to endure these hardships. Look at verse 20. The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness, David says. According to the cleanness of my hands, he's rewarded me. For I've kept the ways of the Lord. I haven't done evil by turning from God. All his laws are before me. I have not turned away from his decrees. I have been blameless before him. And I have kept myself from sin. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. David is not saying here that he has a sinless heart. He's saying he has an obedient heart. He's saying he has a heart that is committed to the ways of God. He is saying that he has purpose in his heart to walk away from the things that will turn him away from the one true God. And he's saying, I'm not keeping the law just for the sake of my self-righteousness. If you read in these verses, he says... I'm keeping the law so that I will not turn away from my God. I know your ways are perfect. And I have purposed my soul to follow your ways. And God enables all his servants to pursue godliness in this life. So I kind of summed up David's thoughts here. The one who does the will of God will experience the help of his God in adversity. And then in this way, God sort of lets man choose the pattern of how he's going to deal with him, And that's what David's talking about in the next few verses. To the faithful, you show yourself faithful. To the blameless, you show yourself blameless. To the pure, you show yourself pure, but to the crooked, you show yourself shrewd. You save the humble, but bring low those whose eyes are haughty. So on your outline, The humble heart is a mighty heart. The first one was the righteous heart is a mighty heart. The humble heart. If David was bragging or saw himself as bragging, I don't think he could have written that verse there. And he continues to give God the credit for anything good and righteous and strong in his life. Look at verse 28. You, O Lord, keep my lamp burning. My God turns my darkness into light. With your help, I can advance against a troop. With my God, I can scale a wall. And so the third heart is a thankful heart, is a mighty heart. A heart of praise is one strong heart. And that's one thing our praise team has been telling us for years. When we have a heart of praise, it's amazing the victories we can see when we are with God. Now... I love the Gaither song, these words, praise the Lord for the cords, like David talked about, the cords that seem to bind you, they serve only to remind you. They drop powerless behind you when you praise him. And I think we don't have time to get into this a lot, but we also praise God and we find victory even if we don't understand the whys and the whats of our trials. Even if we continue to praise God when we're not getting it, when we don't understand it, if we figure out I'm going to continue to praise God, we can find victory. Our mom's group is doing a book by Johnny Erickson Tata, and you all know about her. She was 17, was with friends and diving and broke her neck, and she's uh, been paralyzed her whole life. She's probably, I don't know, 50s or 60s now. And um, he first would talk at God about her injury, telling him what he should be doing in anger. And then she talked about God to the people around her. Why would he do something like this to me? And then she decided to go to God. And she did. And guess what? Even though she's still in her wheelchair, he delivered her. She sings his praises. She's delivered from her distress. She's delivered from those chains that seem to bind her because that God finally could speak to her, I have a plan for you, and I'll do it with you, and you can do it. And one day with me, you'll be out of that wheelchair. She's still praising God. And God has used her through the whole world. She has a huge ministry, not only to help people that are suffering, but she has brought wheelchairs into some of the most crazy places in the world and shared the love of Jesus. Okay, the knowing heart is a mighty heart, the heart that knows the character of God. And we're out of time, but in verses 30 through 36, he tells you that God is perfect, the Word is flawless, He's a protector. He knows that he is his refuge. We have to know the character of God. He is our help and our provider. I love the last few verses here when he talks about he makes my feet, he takes my hands, he takes my arms. He goes through the entire body. And it's a picture of the fact that we are in total control with God. We wear a total armor. There's no chink in our armor. Now look at verse 35 with me. You give me your shield of victory, and your right hand sustains me. You stoop down to make me great. And the better interpretation of that word stoop is gentleness. David is saying, God, your gentleness, your gentle compassion, that's what makes me great. Our hearts need to understand he has compassion if we are going to get through times of turmoil. And on your verse sheet, I've listed about three verses you can look at later that tells you about the gentle love of God in your life. And then the last mighty heart, the loving heart is a mighty heart. And when I say that, I don't mean the loving heart that you go around loving people. I mean you are in love with God, the loving heart heart. The heart that loves God is a mighty God. If we only love God a little, we're going to have a weak little heart. Look at verse 1 of chapter 18. This is my favorite part. This was my favorite thing about this psalm, and then we'll be done. David begins all these words of victory and praise by saying, I love you. I love you, O oh Lord, my strength. He confesses his great love, and I think his love is the ribbon that ties all his praise together about the deliverance of God. And what I want to tell you this is, that word love right there is not the word love that's used in the Old Testament. It's, it maybe have only been used in this one place, and it means a tender Intimate love like a husband to a wife, like a child to a mother. That is what David's talking about, his love here. Look at your verse sheet, the last verse. I am my beloved's and he is mine. His banner over me is love. That's why David wanted to face Goliath. Because he was making fun of his beloved. That's why Peter wept when he denied Christ, because he loved him. It was love that made John lay his head on Jesus' chest at the Last Supper. It was love that made Mary Magdalene get drawn to the tomb after Christ was laid there. It is love that made Paul endure the beatings and everything he went through. The heart that loves God, we take him our fears... We take him our joys, we take him our sorrows, we take him our concerns because he is our beloved, he is mighty to save, and we have that reality alive in our heart that loves him. And so when those Goliaths rise above us, we persevere because the battle is the Lord's. The battle belongs to our beloved. Let me pray. We love you, Lord. We give you all praise and glory for who you are. And just remind us every day, Father, the battle is the Lord's. We are yours. You love us, you equip us, and we want to give you praise and glory for that. We pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Thank you, Lynn. We are in need of a cleanup committee here after Bible study. If that is something that might